Help us choose which books to read next on Send Me to Sleep. You can vote using the link in the episode notes. Thanks, everyone. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading Part 2, Chapters 17-19 to of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. In the last chapters, Stepan Arkadyevich sold his woodland for a terrible price. In tonight's story, Levin and Stepan argue over this matter. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 17 Stepan Arkadyevich went upstairs with his pocketbook bulging with notes, which the merchant had paid him for three months in advance. The business of the forest was over, the money in his pocket, their shooting had been excellent, and Stepan Arkadyevich was in the happiest frame of mind and so he felt specially anxious to dissipate the ill-humour that had come upon Levin. He wanted to finish the day at supper as pleasantly as it had begun. Levin certainly was out of humour, and in spite of all his desire to be affectionate and cordial to his charming visitor, he could not control his mood. The intoxication of the news that Kitty was not married had gradually begun to work upon him. Kitty was not married, but ill, and ill from love for a man who had slighted her. This slight, as it were, rebounded upon him. Vronsky had slighted her, and she had slighted him, Levin. Consequently, Vronsky had the right to despise Levin, and therefore he was his enemy. But all this Levin did not think out. He vaguely felt that there was something in it insulting to him, and he was not angry now at what had disturbed him, but he fell foul of everything that presented itself. The stupid sale of the forest, the fraud practiced upon Oblonsky, and concluded in his house, exasperated him. 
Well, finished, he said, meeting Stepan Arkadyevich upstairs. Would you like supper? Well, I wouldn't say no to it. What an appetite I get in the country. Wonderful. Why didn't you offer Ryabinin something? Oh, damn him. Still, how you do treat him, said Oblonsky. You didn't even shake hands with him. Why not shake hands with him? Because I don't shake hands with a waiter, and a waiter's a hundred times better than he is. What a reactionist you are, really. What about the amalgamation of classes, said Oblonsky. Anyone who likes amalgamating is welcome to it, but it sickens me. You're a regular reactionist, I see. Really, I have never considered what I am. I am Constantin Levin, and nothing else. And Constantin Levin, very much out of temper, said Stepan Arkadyevich, smiling. Yes, I am out of temper. And do you know why? Because, excuse me, of your stupid sale. Stepan Arkadyevich frowned good-humouredly, like one who feels himself teased and attacked for no fault of his own. Come, enough about it, he said. When did anybody ever sell anything without being told immediately after the sale? It was worth much more. But when one wants to sell, no one will give anything. No, I see you've a grudge against that unlucky Ryabinin. Maybe I have. And do you know why? You'll say again that I am a reactionist or some other terrible word. But all the same, it does annoy and anger me to see on all sides the impoverishing of the nobility to which I belong, and, in spite of the amalgamation of classes, I'm glad to belong. And their impoverishment is not due to extravagance. That would be nothing. Living in good style, that's the proper thing for noblemen. It's only the nobles who know how to do it. Now the peasants about us buy land, and I don't mind that. The gentleman does nothing, while the peasant works and supplants the idle man. That's as it ought to be, and I'm very glad for the peasant. But I do mind seeing the process of impoverishment from a sort of, I don't know what to call it, innocence. Here a Polish speculator bought for half its value a magnificent estate from a young lady who lives in Nice. And there a merchant will get three acres of land, worth ten roubles, as security for the loan of one rouble. Here, for no kind of reason, you've made that rascal a present of thirty thousand roubles. Well, what should I have done? Counted every tree? 
Of course. They must be counted. You didn't count them, but Ryabinin did. Ryabinin's children will have means of livelihood and education, while yours maybe will not. Well, you must excuse me, but there's something mean in this counting. We have our business, and they have theirs, and they must make their profit. Anyway, the thing's done, and there's an end of it. And here come some poached eggs, my favourite dish, and Agafe Mihalovna will give us that marvellous herb brandy. Stepan Arkadyevich sat down at the table and began joking with Agafe Mihalovna, assuring her that it was long since he had tasted such a dinner and such a supper. Well, you do praise it anyway, said Agafe Mihalovna. But Konstantin Dmitrovich, give him what you will, a crust of bread, he'll eat it and walk away. Though Levin tried to control himself, he was gloomy and silent. He wanted to put one question to Stepan Arkadyevich, but he could not bring himself to the point, and could not find the words or the moment to which to put it. Stepan Arkadyevich had gone down to his room, undressed, again washed, and attired in a nightshirt with goffered frills. He had gotten into bed, but Levin still lingered in his room, talking of various trifling matters and not daring to ask what he wanted to know. How wonderfully they make this soap, he said, gazing at a piece of soap he was handling, which Agafe Mihalovna had put ready for the visitor, but Oblonsky had not used. Only look... Why, it's a work of art. Yes, everything's brought to such a pitch of perfection nowadays, said Stepan Arkadyevich, with a moist and blissful yawn. The theatre, for instance, and the entertainments. Ah, he yawned. The electric light, everywhere. Ah... Yes, the electric light, said Levin. Yes. Oh, and where's Vronsky now? He asked suddenly, laying down the soap. Vronsky, said Stepan Arkadyevich, checking his yawn. He's in Petersburg. He left soon after you did, and he's not once been in Moscow since. And do you know, Kostya... I'll tell you the truth, he went on, leaning his elbow on the table and propping on his hand his handsome ruddy face, in which his moist, good-natured, sleepy eyes shone like stars. It's your own fault. You took fright at the sight of your rival. But, as I told you at the time, I couldn't say which had the better chance. Why didn't you fight it out? I told you at the time that... He yawned inwardly, without opening his mouth. Does he know, or doesn't he, 
but I did make an offer, Levin wondered, gazing at him. Yes, there's something humbugging, diplomatic in his face. And feeling he was blushing, he looked at Stepan Arkadyevich straight in the face without speaking. If there was anything on her side at the time, it was nothing but a superficial attraction, pursued Oblonsky. His being such a perfect aristocrat, don't you know, and his future position in society had an influence not with her, but with her mother. Levin scowled. The humiliation of his rejection stung him to the heart as though it were a fresh wound he had only just received. But he was at home, and the walls of home are a support. Stay, stay, he began, interrupting Oblonsky. You talk of his being an aristocrat, but allow me to ask what it consists in, that aristocracy of Vronsky, or of anybody else beside which I can be looked down upon. You consider Vronsky an aristocrat, but I don't. A man whose father crawled up from nothing at all by intrigue, and whose mother, God knows whom she wasn't mixed up with. No, excuse me, but I consider myself an aristocrat, and people like me who can point back in the past to three or four honourable generations of their family, of the highest degree of breeding, talent and intellect, of course that's another matter, and have never carried favour with anyone, never depended on anyone for anything, like my father and my grandfather. And I know many such. You think it mean of me to count the trees in my forest, while you make Ryabinin a present of thirty thousand. But you get rent from your lands, and I don't know what, while I don't, and so I prize what's come to me from my ancestors or been won by my hard work. We are aristocrats, and not those who can only exist by favour of the powerful of this world and who can be bought for twopence halfpenny. Well, but whom are you attacking? I agree with you, said Stepan Arkadyevich, sincerely and genially, though he was aware that in the class of those who could be bought for twopence and halfpenny, Levin was reckoning him too. Levin's warmth gave him genuine pleasure. Whom are you attacking? Though a good deal is not true that you say about Vronsky, but I won't talk about that. I tell you straight out, if I were you, I should go back with me to Moscow, and... No, I don't know whether you know it or not, but I don't care. And I tell you, I did make an offer, and was rejected, and Katrina Alexandrovna is nothing now to me but a painful and humiliating reminiscence. Whatever for? What nonsense? But we won't talk about it. Please forgive me. I've been nasty, said Levin, 
Now that he had opened his heart, he became as he had been in the morning. You're not angry with me, Steva. Please don't be angry, he said, and smiling, he took his hand. Of course not, not a bit, and no reason to be. I'm glad we've spoken openly. And do you know, stand shooting in the morning is unusually good. Why not go? I couldn't sleep the night anyway, but I might go straight from shooting to the station. Capital. Chapter 18 Although all Vronsky's inner life was absorbed in his passion, his external life unalterably and inevitably followed along the old accustomed lines of his social and regimental ties and interests. The interests of his regiment took an important place in Vronsky's life, both because he was fond of the regiment and because the regiment was fond of him. They were not only fond of Vronsky in his regiment, they respected him too, and were proud of him, proud that this man, with his immense wealth, his brilliant education and abilities, and the path open before him to every kind of success, distinction, and ambition, had disregarded all that, and of all the interests of life, had the interests of his regiment and his comrades nearest to his heart. Vronsky was aware of his comrades' view of him, and in addition to his liking for the life, he felt bound to keep up that reputation. It need not be said that he did not speak of his love to any one of his comrades, nor did he betray his secret even in the wildest drinking bouts, though indeed he was never so drunk as to lose control of himself and he shut up any of his thoughtless comrades who attempted to allude to his connection. But in spite of that, his love was known to all the town. Everyone guessed with more or less confidence at his relations with Madame Karenina. The majority of the younger men envied him for just what was the most irksome factor in his love, the exalted position of Karenin and the consequent publicity of their connection in society. The greater number of the younger women, who envied Anna and had long been weary of hearing her called virtuous, rejoiced at the fulfilment of their predictions, and were only waiting for a decisive turn in public opinion to fall upon her with all the weight of their scorn. They were already making ready their handful of mud to fling at her when the right moment arrived. The greater number of the middle-aged people and certain great personages were displeased at the prospect of the impending scandal in society. Ronsky's mother, on hearing of his connection, was at first pleased at it because nothing to her mind gave such a finishing touch to a brilliant young man as a liaison in the highest society. She was pleased, too, that Madame Karenina, who had so taken her fancy, 
and had thought so much of her son, was, after all, just like all other pretty and well-bred women, at least according to the Countess Vronskaya's ideas. But she had heard of late that her son had refused a position offered him of great importance to his career, simply in order to remain in the regiment where he could be constantly seeing Madame Karenina. She learned that great personages were displeased with him on this account, and she changed her opinion. She was vexed, too, that from all she could learn of this connection, it was not that brilliant, grateful, worldly liaison which she should have welcomed, but a sort of worthyish, desperate passion, so she was told which might well lead him into imprudence. She had not seen him since his abrupt departure from Moscow, and she sent her elder son to bid him to come to see her. This elder son, too, was displeased with his younger brother. He did not distinguish what sort of love his might be, big or little, passionate or passionless, lasting or passing. He kept a ballet girl himself, though he was the father of a family, so he was lenient in these matters. But he knew that this love affair was viewed with displeasure by those whom it was necessary to please, and therefore he did not approve of his brother's conduct. Besides the service and society, Vronsky had another great interest. Horses. He was passionately fond of horses. That year, races and steeplechases had been arranged for the officers. Vronsky had put his name down, bought a thoroughbred English mare, and in spite of his love affair, he was looking forward to the races with intense, though reserved, excitement. These two passions did not interfere with one another. On the contrary, he needed occupation and distraction quite apart from his love, so as to recruit and rest himself from the violent emotions that agitated him. Chapter 19 On the day of the races at Krasno Selo, Vronsky had come earlier than usual to eat beefsteak in the common messroom of the regiment. He had no need to be strict with himself, as he had very quickly been brought down to the required light weight, but still he had to avoid gaining flesh, and so he eschewed farinaceous and sweet dishes. He sat with his coat unbuttoned over a white waistcoat, resting both elbows on the table, and while waiting for the steak he had ordered, he looked at a French novel that lay open on his plate. He was only looking at the book to avoid conversation with the officers coming in and out. He was thinking. He was thinking of Anna's promise to see him that day after the races. But he had not seen her for three days, and as her husband had just returned from abroad, he did not know whether she would be able to meet him today or not and he did not know how to find out. 
He had had his last interview with her at his cousin Betsy's summer villa. He visited the Karenin's summer villa as rarely as possible. Now he wanted to go there, and he pondered the question how to do it. Of course, I shall say Betsy has sent me to ask whether she's coming to the races. Of course, I'll go, he decided, lifting his head from the book. And as he vividly pictured the happiness of seeing her, his face lighted up. Send to my house, and tell them to have out the carriage and three horses as quick as they can, he said to the servant, who handed him the steak on a hot silver dish, and moving the dish up, he began eating. From the billiard room next door came the sound of balls knocking, of talk and laughter. Two officers appeared at the entrance door, one a young fellow with a feeble, delicate face, who had lately joined the regiment from the Corps de Page, the other a plump, elderly officer with a bracelet on his wrist and little eyes lost in fat. Vronsky glanced up at them, frowned and looking down at his book, as though he had not noticed them, he proceeded to eat and read at the same time. What? Fortifying yourself for your work, said the plump officer, sitting down beside him. As you see, responded Vronsky, knitting his brows, wiping his mouth, and not looking at the officer. So you're not afraid of getting fat? said the latter, turning a chair round for the younger officer. What? said Vronsky, angrily, making a wry face of disgust and showing his even teeth. You're not afraid of getting fat. Waiter, Sherry, said Vronsky, without replying, and moving the book to the other side of him. He went on reading. The plump officer took up the list of wines and turned to the young officer. You choose what we're to drink, he said, handing him the card and looking at him. Rhine wine, please, said the young officer, stealing a timid glance at Vronsky and trying to pull his scarcely visible moustache. Seeing that Vronsky did not turn round, the young officer got up. Let's go into the billiard room, he said. The plump officer rose submissively, and they moved towards the door. At that moment, there walked into the room the tall and well-built Captain Yashvin, Nodding with an air of lofty contempt to the two officers, he went up to Vronsky. Ah, here he is, he cried, bringing his big hands down heavily upon his epaulet. Vronsky looked round angrily, but his face lighted up immediately with his characteristic expression of genial and manly serenity. That's it, Alexei, said the captain, 
in his loud baritone. You must just eat a mouthful now and drink only one tiny glass. Oh, I'm not hungry. There goes the inseparables, Yashvin dropped, glancing sarcastically at the two officers who were at the instant leaving the room. And he bent his long legs, swathed in tight riding breeches, and sat down in the chair, too low for him, so that his knees were cramped up in a sharp angle. Why didn't you turn up at the Red Theatre yesterday? Numerova wasn't all that bad. Where were you? It was late at the Svertkois, said Vronsky. Ah, responded Yashvin. Yashvin, a gambler and a rake, a man not merely without moral principles, but of immoral principles. Yashvin was Vronsky's greatest friend in the regiment. Vronsky liked him for both his exceptional physical strength, which he showed for the most part by being able to drink like a fish and do without sleep without being in the slightest degree affected by it, and for his great strength of character, which he showed in his relations with his comrades and superior officers commanding both fear and respect, and also, at cards, when he would play for tens of thousands and however much he might have drunk, always with such skill and decision that he was reckoned the best player in the English club. Vronsky respected and liked Yashvin, particularly because he felt Yashvin liked him, not for his name and his money, but for himself and of all men, he was the only one with whom Vronsky would have liked to speak of his love. He felt that Yashvin, in spite of his apparent contempt for every sort of feeling, was the only man who could, so he fancied, comprehend the intense passion which now filled his whole life. Moreover, he felt certain that Yashvin, as it was, took no delight in gossip and scandal, and interpreted his feelings rightly, that is to say, knew and believed that this passion was not a jest, not a pastime, but something more serious and important. Vronsky had never spoken to him of his passion, but he was aware that he knew all about it and that he put the right interpretation on it, and he was glad to see that in his eyes. Ah, yes, he said to the announcement that Vronsky had been at the Sverkois, and his black eyes shining, he plucked at his left moustache and began twisting it into his mouth, a bad habit he had. Well, and what did you do yesterday? Win anything? said Vronsky. Eight thousand. But three don't count. He won't pay up. Oh, then you can afford to lose over me, said Vronsky, laughing. 
Yashvin had bet heavily on Vronsky in the races. No chance of my losing. Mahatin's the only one that's risky. And the conversation passed to the forecasts of the coming race. The only thing Vronsky could think of just now. Come along, I've finished, said Vronsky, and getting up, he went to the door. Yashvin got up too, stretching his long legs and his long back. It's too early for me to dine, but I must have a drink. I'll come along directly. High wine, he shouted in his rich voice that always rang out so loudly at drill and set the windows shaking now. No, all right, he shouted again immediately after. You're going home, so I'll go with you. And he walked out with Vronsky. Vronsky.